If you'd please turn in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Colossians. This morning we will be in Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. Colossians 3, 15 through 17. And as you make your way there, will you please rise to your feet in honor of God's word as we read the scripture together this morning. Um, I'm going to be reading from the ESV. I just follow along as best you can in whatever translation you are using. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 15. It says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning. We thank you that we have your word, that we can study your word, that we can grow as we look to your word. God, I pray that this morning, as we go over this passage, may we be challenged, may we be encouraged to grow deeper in our walk with you, to grow closer to you. May you open our hearts to hear what you have for each and every one of us this morning. And may you be honored and glorified through our thoughts, through our minds, as we spend this time looking at your word. God, we do this for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right, well, before we dig into the text itself, I think it's important for us to step back and look at some background information. Now, normally, in our usual verse-by-verse format, we would begin the study of a book by looking at all of the background information. We would look at who wrote the book, who it was written to, when it was written, where it was written, why it was written, etc. Um, for those of you who were here in January, you might remember that we did do this for Colossians. We went through all the background information. Um, so you might remember some of this stuff. If you weren't here, that teaching is on our website. You can go back and look it up. Um, we're not going to go that in-depth this morning. But in order to properly understand what Paul is saying here, we do need to understand some of the context. So the book of Colossians was written while Paul was in prison. Most scholars believe this was sometime during his imprisonment in Rome, between 60 and 62 AD. This book was also very likely written around the same time as Paul's letter to the Ephesians and Philemon. Paul himself had never visited Colossae, nor the church there, uh, as he references various times throughout this book. Um, you can look at chapter 2, verse 1. But instead, this church was likely started as an outgrowth of Paul's two-and-a-half-year-long ministry in Ephesus, which is a neighboring city in Asia Minor. During the course of his ministry in Ephesus, we know of at least two people from Colossae, Epaphras and Philemon, who it seemed then went back and spread the gospel in their hometown. Now, in his letter to the Colossians, Paul is addressing some false teaching that he was made aware of creeping into the church. Epaphras, who was from Colossae, had come to visit Paul in Rome and had shared with him some of the things that were going on. These false teachings that were creeping into the church were promoting a form of legalism, which was a, a constant struggle in those days, a worship of angels, 
uh, and most disturbingly, they were denying the deity of Christ. And the result is a letter from Paul, which includes one of the greatest declarations of Christ's deity found anywhere in Scripture. And I want to read that, Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. Speaking of Christ, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In this letter, Paul spends the first two chapters declaring and defending Christ's preeminence, that is, his superiority, his surpassing of all others, reminding the church that Christ and Christ alone is all that they need. He warns them against empty philosophies, chapter 2, verse 8. He warns them against legalism, in chapter 2, verse 11, and man-made rituals and disciplines, in chapter 2, verse 16. He then turns, in chapters 3 and 4, to practical matters of Christian living. In the beginning of chapter 3, he addresses the believer's personal walk in Christ. And then towards the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, he addresses the believer's home life and family life, his life at work, and the believer's relationship to those outside the church, to non-believers. But in the middle of chapter 3, from verses 12 to 17, Paul addresses the lives of believers within the church or within their Christian fellowship. And that is the portion we are looking at today. So with all that in mind, I want to read again verses 15 through 17 as we begin this study. It says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And just a quick read-through of the text, we can already see a repeated emphasis on thanksgiving. Verse 15 ends with, and be thankful. Verse 16 ends with, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And verse 17 ends with, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Keep in mind that this is written while Paul is in prison, just to put that in perspective, and yet he repeatedly comes back in this short letter to the idea of thanksgiving. Even in prison, Paul's mind goes to gratitude and thanksgiving, and he encourages his fellow believers that this should be their attitude as well. But he pairs that thanksgiving with three different things. The peace of Christ in verse 15, the word of Christ in verse 16, and the name of Christ in verse 17. And we want to take some time this morning to look more closely at each of those areas. So we'll start in verse 15, the peace of Christ. What is peace? Webster defines peace as a state of tranquility or quiet. I came across uh, an interesting statistic as I was studying. This was published back in 1979, so it's old now, but... At that time, only 8% of the time since the beginning of recorded history has the world been entirely at peace. In over 3,100 years, 
only 286 have been warless. And in that time, 8,000 treaties have been broken. In fact, it's no small amount of irony that a dispute over a silver star hanging over the supposed birthplace of Jesus in Bethlehem played a role in causing a war which involved five world powers, lasted three years, caused a million casualties at a cost of a billion and a half dollars. It's known as the Crimean War from 1853 to 1856. We contrast with the idea that Jesus Christ himself is called the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9-6, a verse that we hear often around this time of year. And even when the angels were telling the shepherds of the coming of the Messiah, they declared glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased in Luke 2.14. So how do we reconcile this with the fact that peace is not what we see when we look at the world around us? Biblical peace and the peace Paul refers to here in Colossians can't just be a state of tranquility or quiet as Webster defines it because that doesn't exist in this world. In fact, almost in opposition to his title, Jesus declares in Luke 12, 51, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Rather than peace... We seem to be in the midst of a war. And Paul actually confirms this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So we are in a war. And this hardly sounds like anything we could refer to as peace. So how do we reconcile these seeming contradictions? How can we have peace and be at war simultaneously? And I believe that the Bible clearly points to two ways in which we do have the peace of Christ present in our lives today, even while in a war with the world. First and foremost, I believe this is referring to the peace that we have with God. Isaiah 59 verses 2 and 3 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. The sin that we have in our nature, that sin that started with Adam in the garden and has continued in all of mankind to this day, that sin places us against God in a state of rebellion and war against the very God who created us. And we are none of us immune to this fact. Paul again writes in Romans 3, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We are, all of us, of ourselves, with our sinful nature, existing in a relationship with a holy God that is completely absent of peace. But Jesus Christ is the answer to that. 
because of Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. And that is why his coming was heralded with peace on earth. That is why he was given the title Prince of Peace. Romans 5, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Again, what we read earlier in this letter to the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 20, through him, that being Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This peace that we have is not a peace with the world, but a peace with the God who created the world and us in it. A peace ultimately much more important than any other peace we could have. And a peace that only comes through Jesus Christ and the redeeming work he did on the cross. This is the peace of Christ. But I mentioned two ways in which we experience peace. The first is peace with God. The second, I believe, is peace amongst one another as believers. Paul adds to his statement, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. We are to have peace with each other as the body of Christ. In John chapter 17, as Jesus prays for his disciples, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. We, as believers, are called to unity and peace as the body of Christ. This, as Jesus says here, is a sign of the church to the world. John 13, verses 34 and 35 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And notice that the call here is for us to love one another, referring to fellow disciples. Yes, we have the love of God flowing through us, and ultimately that will overflow to the world around us. But the defining marker here of a true believer is the love that they have for other followers of Christ. This is why unity is so important and why Paul comes back over and over again in his letters to call for unity within the body. And it's not just because we love one another, but because in Christ we are one. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And earlier in this chapter, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, it says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. The unity and bond that we have in Christ is and should be the single defining characteristic in our lives, greater than any one thing that may divide us. And this should be true of us today, as just as it was in the day of, days of the early church. We are one in Christ, whether we are Marine or Navy, whether we are military or civilian, whether we are American or Japanese, whether we come from a, a charismatic background, a 
fundamental background or no Christian background at all. And even, dare I say it, whether we are vaccinated or unvaccinated. And I know that's a taboo topic, but what an opportunity we as the church have had and I think have mostly missed over these past couple of years to demonstrate the unity of the body of Christ to the world. And instead we get caught up in the division that is around us. And I want to be careful, let us not think as the 21st century church that we have the corner of the market on division. Let us not think that Paul didn't understand how truly divisive things could be in the church. Just look again at these lists. He starts out with neither Jew nor Greek, and you merely have to look through the book of Acts to see how often this issue came up and how contentious it was. Stephen, the first martyr in church history, was appointed to his role because of fighting between the Jews and the Greeks about the distribution of bread. Paul confronted Peter about the way Peter acted in front of Greeks versus the way he acted in front of other Jews. Timothy was circumcised because of uh, hang-ups with Jews and circumcision because Timothy's father was a Greek. And he did this to appease them that he might continue his ministry. Like over and over again, we see this conflict cropping up in the early church. This was a big issue, but Paul says, there isn't Jew or Greek. We are all one in Christ. Look back at the list again. Neither slave nor free. Now, to us today, this doesn't seem as real of an issue because we tend to not confront it as much. But this was huge, especially for the church Paul is writing to in, in Colossae. And remember, this is written around the same time as the letter to Philemon. Philemon was a church leader in Colossae who was also a slave owner. And this letter was sent in the company of a man named Onesimus, who was Philemon's runaway slave and also a believer. Like this was a very real issue that the church was wrestling with. Continuing on the list, there's neither male nor female. If you look through the book of Acts, you see that in many of the churches that Paul started, especially throughout Greece and Thyatira and Philippi and Thessalonica, he mentions specifically the leading women that he met who were instrumental in those churches. And this was a society in which women were second-class citizens. They did not have the same rights and opportunities as men, and Paul is pointing to their role in the founding and the carry-on of the early ministry. Again, this was a very clear very divisive issue in that day. And the point is, in any age, in Paul's time, in our time, there are going to be issues that provide opportunity for division within the church. But we have something more important than those issues. We have Christ. In light of Christ, none of those issues should matter. We should be united. We should be one. We should have peace. So Paul exhorts the church, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you have been called in one body, and be thankful. Consider what God has done in reconciling you to himself. Consider the love he showed in giving his son to pay your penalty, and consider the unity, the fellowship, the family he provides for you within the body of Christ, and be thankful. There is no other appropriate response. When we put it in perspective, with God being who he is and we being who we are, we must be thankful. Moving on to verse 16. We read, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So first the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts, and now the word of Christ dwelling in us. 
The Greek word for dwell, enoikeho, is used four other times in the New Testament. It contains this idea, not of just dwelling, but to dwell in and influence one for good. And this is what the word of Christ does when we give it space in our hearts and lives. John 5.36, Jesus says, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Ephesians 5.26 says we are cleansed by the washing of the word. God's word in our heart cleanses us and gives us life in him. Psalm 119, it's a wonderful chapter on the presence and the importance of God's word in our lives. Psalm 119, it's right in the middle of the Bible. I don't think it's an accident that the longest chapter in the Bible is all about God's word. And we're not going to turn to it and read it now because that would probably take the rest of our time to read all the way through that. But just kind of an overview of what we find in Psalm 119. And I encourage you to go look at it later. We see in verse 11 that God's word keeps us from sinning. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verses 25, 40, 93, 156, God's word gives us life. Verse 28, God's word strengthens us. It gives us hope. We see in verse 43, 49, 74, 81, 114, 147, over and over again. God's word gives us comfort. We see this in verses 15, 52. It is better than great riches. See in verse 72 and 127. It endures forever in verses 89 and 152. It makes us wise. Verses 98, 104, and 130. And then verse 105, we all know your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Over and over and over again, yet in no way overstating the case, the psalmist proclaims the incomparable value of the word of God in our lives. And we do well to have his word dwelling in us. But not just dwelling in us, dwelling in us richly, literally in abundance or in a great amount to a great extent. Paul is talking here of something far beyond just listening for an hour on a Sunday morning. We are to let the word of Christ dwell in us daily, hourly, minute by minute. In Psalm chapter 1, the psalmist writes, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This is the attitude Paul is pointing to. The word of Christ so ingrained into our lives that it outweighs all the other influences that cry for sway over our mind. Because we are in a battle. Second Corinthians, Paul says we are to take every thought captive to obey Christ, But the only way we can do this is if we are deeply and intimately familiar with the word of Christ. His word is our sword, we read in Ephesians chapter 6. To be equipped to live as a Christian in this world, we must let the word dwell in us and dwell in us richly. And it is from this indwelling of the word, or rather an overflow of this dwelling, that we're able to minister to others. Back in Colossians, in verse 16, it continues, Let the word of Christ dwell on you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And notice here, it says, teaching and admonishing one another. It does not say, if you are a pastor, teach and admonish. It does not say, listen as the pastor teaches and admonishes. Rather, we as believers are to teach and admonish one another. We are all called to this, and this comes as a result of the word in us. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Membership in the body of Christ is an active membership, not a passive one. 
We are called to good works, Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The gifts we have and the works prepared for us are there to build up the body of Christ. Ephesians 4.12, Paul writes, the gifts are given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. We all have a part to play in this ministry that we call the church. And we are equipped for that part by the word of Christ dwelling in us. Thus we are called to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And not to continue repeating this, but if you are wondering where we get that wisdom, it's from the word of God. Psalm 19 verse 7 says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Anyone searching for wisdom needs only to turn to the word of God and find there all they need. And now we reach an interesting portion in our passage this morning. The verse continues, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And I might be, my, might be biased, but isn't that a great verse? We are commanded to sing. And those of you that love hymns, you have that word highlighted in there. Those of you who don't really care for hymns have circled spiritual songs instead. And both groups are trying to figure out if anybody still sings psalms. Um, but wherever you may fall on genres of music, and we don't really know for certain what those three groups are or even how to distinguish them, I want to take and look at three separate things within this little section as we consider the role of songs and singing here in corporate worship. Now, as we do this, I want to read a similar passage in Ephesians. You'll recall that the letter to the Ephesians was likely written in the same time period uh, in the church and to the church in the neighboring city of Ephesus. Um, so if you want to turn quickly, keep your fingers in both places. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 looking at verses 18 through 20. So Ephesians 5, 18 says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there seem to be some, and you may have heard of this as you travel around, that differentiate churches in this way. So you might hear them say of one church, that's a Bible-believing church, uh, in reference to a church that emphasizes teaching of the Word, but maybe more stiff, more formal. Uh, we might call it fundamental. Um, and you might hear, describing another church, that's a Spirit-filled church, um, about a church that seems to be a little more charismatic, but maybe not as into the nitty-gritty of Bible study. But what do we see in these passages? Notice the similarities here. Both passages mention the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But the source is different. In this passage in Ephesians, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. In Colossians 3, we read to be filled with the Word of Christ. In the mind of Paul and the early church, these two ideas coincide. They aren't separate. To be filled with the Word of Christ is to be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with the Word of Christ. God is one. The Holy Spirit and the Son are one and the same God. And a church that is filled with the Spirit is a church that by its very nature of being filled with the Spirit loves the Word of God. 
and a church that loves and dives into and allows the word to dwell in them richly, that is a church filled with the spirit. And we cannot and should not try to separate those two. But there's a second thing I want us to notice here, and that's more clearly seen in Ephesians, although I believe it's contextually there in Colossians as well. Notice the direction of the action. It's addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, while there most certainly is a vertical aspect to our singing between us and God, there is also clearly a horizontal aspect to our singing. You can make an argument that the audible aspect of our singing together is more for the benefit of one another as God is concerned with the heart. You see, making melody to the Lord in your heart. And we live in a church culture that often wants to highlight the vertical aspect. We do things like dim the lights. We turn up the music. Um, I have heard people say that they worship better when they can't hear their own voice. Music's loud enough. And, and in a way, I understand. I get it. I would feel less self-conscious if I can't hear me because then I know people around me can't hear me. But I think when we do that, we miss out on a crucial aspect of our worship. The beauty of corporate worship and corporate singing is the unity that comes from singing the truth of God together. And we're back to that idea of unity. And I think that's here. There's something we get from belting out a song of praise and joining our voice to a room of fellow brothers and sisters who are walking through life with us. And who knows, it may be that the person behind you, the person in front of you, and the next row over needs that encouragement of unity with the body. The fact that you are singing audibly, engagingly, may be the encouragement someone else needs to actually believe and hang on to the truth that they are singing. It's something to ponder as we sing together. Our singing is a ministry to one another as much as it is to God. And the third thing we take from looking at these two passages next to each other is going to be that vertical aspect of our corporate singing. In Ephesians, making melody to the Lord with your heart, and Colossians, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Although God does want our audible singing and commands it many times, it needs to be an expression of our heart's position. It means nothing if it's just words. God wants it to come from our hearts. And it comes as it must, with thankfulness. Our worship of God comes from our gratitude to him. Just as when we consider the peace we have through Christ, our response must be gratitude, so also when we consider all that we have through his word, our response must also be gratitude. And because of that, we offer up a sacrifice of praise in the words of Hebrews 3.15, the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. And that brings us to verse 17, the name of the Lord, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. With the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts and the word of Christ dwelling in us, we are equipped to offer up everything we do in word or deed to him. Again, we can break this up into three parts. First, our words. We are to say everything we say in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, those of you in the military, especially the fact that you're serving overseas, you have an acute understanding of what it means to represent something beyond yourselves. When you are wearing the uniform, the things you say and do represent not just you, but your unit, your branch, and ultimately the U.S. government. The good things you do will bring credit to the government. The bad things will bring reproach. And because of this, there is a higher level of expectation on your conduct. 
Well, the same thing is true of us as believers. Whether we live up to it or not, we are representing God and Jesus Christ as his disciples. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. How often do we consider before we speak that our words are going to be a representation of Christ to those who hear them? Therefore, we are held to a higher standard on account of our speech. Matthew 12, 36, Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Now, how different, we have to ask ourselves, would our conversations be if we had this thought before us as we went about our day? As Christians, our conversations and comments should be pure, encouraging, true and good. In James chapter 3, we read regarding the tongue, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. In the midst of these agricultural examples that James is giving, the point he is getting at is not that we simply need to control our tongues better. He acknowledges earlier on that we can't do that, but that the problem is what is feeding our tongues. Matthew 12, 24, Jesus tells us, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The words we say are a reflection of what we think and believe. And to go back to what we looked at earlier, what is dwelling in us? If, as Paul is urging, we let the word of Christ dwell in us, the result will be this, that every word we speak will be to his glory. If, however, the word of Christ is not dwelling in us richly, if we have something else that we allow that place of attention, that place of our time, our energy, that place of influence in our hearts, that will be seen in the words that we say. Secondly, it will be seen in the things that we do. The things we do and the attitude with which we do them can be expressions of worship to our God. This is in no way limited to what we do at church. The point Paul is making is that everything, wherever we are, should be done in this attitude. Now, this includes what we do at work. Uh, look back in Colossians 3 down at verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. This includes choices we make uh, for the sake of our conscience. In 1 Corinthians 10.31 when Paul is addressing uh, the issue of eating food sacrificed to idols, he says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The choices we make, the activities we do, are not as important as the heart behind them. We should be doing all to the glory of God. This also extends to how we treat others. Hebrews 13, verses 1 and 2 states, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Jesus emphasized this in his teaching about the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. 
I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. Everything that we do, regardless of who it affects or who even knows about it, can be done either in worship to our king or without thought to him. But if we have the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts and the word of Christ dwelling in us, then the outflow of that will be deeds done in his name. That way and only in that way, everything we do in word or deed can be done in the name of our God. And again, Paul ends this with the command to gratitude, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything we do, these words and actions that are acts of worship to our God, are done in thanksgiving for what he has done for us. It reminds me of the time Jesus was at the house of Simon the Pharisee. While he is sitting at dinner, a woman came and washed the feet of Jesus with her tears, anointing them with expensive ointment. And Jesus says of her, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. We have all been forgiven an insurmountable debt, an unavoidable death sentence, being completely deserving of hell and an eternal separation from God. But God, in his great mercy, sent his son to bear that penalty in our place that we might experience his forgiveness. We have been forgiven much, so much, and should overflow in gratitude because of that. That is why we see Paul circle back again and again to thanksgiving. For Paul, the forgiveness and the mercy of Christ was something that was always in view. And because of that, everything he did was done in worship and gratitude. And we, as a church, are called to gratitude. We're called to be grateful as we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts through which we have peace with God and with one another. We're called to be grateful as his word dwells richly in us, reminding us of the sufficiency we have through his word for everything he has appointed to us. And this thankfulness overflows so that everything we say and do is an offering of praise and thanksgiving to him. As we think about this idea of thanksgiving, I want to close with this short article that was published many years ago in The Prairie Overcomer. It's called Think and Thank. It says this, It has been often pointed out that thinking precedes thanking. When we are presented with a gift, it is because we think of its significance and meaning that we are led to express our appreciation. What, then, are the thoughts that, entertained by a Christian, lead to thanksgiving? Somewhere in our thinking there should be thoughts of God. Perhaps we should start there. God, what a train of thought should be started when we think of him. Power, wisdom, goodness, grace, love, care. These are just some of the thoughts that cluster around the word God. When Paul traces the downward path of mankind, he begins by saying that men, when they knew God, glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, Romans 121. Men were not thankful that they had a revelation of God. Indeed, they sought to suppress that knowledge and to evade its power. In addition to thoughts of God, there should be thoughts of ourselves. We should see our own insignificance in the light of the facts we know about God. We should see and confess our own frailty and failures. We should admit our commitment to earthly things, but we should not stop there. 
We should think thoughts about our privileges in Christ. God has loved us and made us significant through sending his son to die for us. The Father has accepted us in the beloved Son. In light of these thoughts, we should be led to think of our responsibilities. We are now responsible to live for God's glory. Redeemed, we should seek to serve him faithfully. We should recognize our responsibility to be thankful. And from our lips, there should come a daily song of praise. Why is it then that we are not more thankful? The truth, probably, is that we don't stop to think. The cares and riches and pleasures of this life choke the plant of gratitude and our lives become unfruitful. Thanksgiving is thus really the product of careful cultivation. It is the fruit of a deliberate resolve to think about God, ourselves, and our privileges and responsibilities. By giving thanks, we make manifest the fact that our lives are not controlled by the imperious cares and concerns of this life. We give testimony to the fact that material things do not dictate the horizons of our soul. May we, as the body of Christ and as his children, take time to think and to thank God for what he does and has done for us. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you. We are so grateful for the life that we have only in you, for the mercy that you showed us by taking our place on the cross, God, and for the love that you show in wanting to dwell in us, wanting us to grow closer to you, to develop that relationship with you. God, we thank you for that. I pray that as your children, as your body, that we would let that peace rule in our hearts, that we would be united in you, that we would be consumed with a desire for your word, and that we would do everything that we do in word and in deed for your glory in an act of thankfulness to you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.